Well, hello and welcome to the Grit Man Show. I'm your host, Grit Man, and thank you for tuning in and listening. We've got a special episode for you today. We take the show on the road out to California. Recently, three of my fellow Grit Men joined me, and we took our wives out to Napa and toured some wineries and drank some great wine and created some lasting memories. And we carved out some time to sit down with Grant Long, who owns a and Air and Reverie Two Wineries, along with his wife, Megan. Kale Cubza introduced me to Grant's wine probably four to five years ago, and, and I have to say that Grant changed my opinion on wine. Before getting to know him and understanding his story and drinking some of his wine, I thought wine was just for the rich folks or those that were kind of stuffy. But now I've realized that wine is about t- heritage and tradition and farming and relationships and just creating memories with those folks you want to be around. So... Hang with me. I'm sure you're thinking, Gritman, have you lost it? This is the Gritman Show, and you're talking about California and wine. Well, I think you're going to see how it all ties together. But first, for those that are new to the show, we talk about grit. Uh, grit is hustle and metal and fortitude and not complaining and figure out a way to make something work and betting on yourself and constantly working on your game. And we talk about grit principles, and we believe that the world needs more grit, and we need strong men, and I'm not a professor or a preacher, so the opinions you hear on this show are things that I've just experienced or observed over time. Well, all right, let's, uh, let's get to the show. We record this under the influence of alcohol. It happened to be 115 degrees in Napa when we were recording this. They had a heat wave. And I told my grit men to, hey, let's wear blue jeans and boots and look like we're from Texas. And they uh, were cussing me on our wardrobe choice. But even though we've had a little wine, a little bourbon, and a couple cold beers, uh, we keep it mostly PG or PG-13. So it's pretty clean and mostly wholesome. I think you'll like it. I want to thank Bubella Real Estate, Clear Companies, and Higginbotham for sponsoring this show. That's our companies that allow us to earn an honest living and do fun things like this. So we appreciate them for bringing this episode to you. All right, Guys, Grant Long, like enjoy. He plays like nails. He's tough as nails. He likes to call himself Grit Man, whatever that means. Quit with my daddy Guess I didn't make the time And it's been a year since I've seen a deer Had a small mouth on the line The other day I hooked a monster as I reeled him in, I thought, man, it feels good to be country again. Well, Grant, welcome to the Grit Men Show. Glad to have you. Thanks for hosting us today and sitting down and chatting with us. Sorry for the weather. 115 never felt more like we were sitting in Texas. <laughs> well, <laughs> my college coach said, however the weather is, that's just how we like it. So we're going to so- show some grit today. I love it. But I think a place to start is we need some wine. And uh, my buddy here, Cubs, uh, I've seen him after a few bottles of wine try to get your wax off and almost cut his finger off. So, I mean, can you show us how to open this? Well, through the years, there's been a lot of <laughs> and different, the story uh, behind the wax. Yeah, I was gonna say a lot of different stories behind the wax, and clearly a lot of different ways to skin a cat. But at the end of the day, I always like to say if it required special instructions, they'd be included. You just take the good old-fashioned corkscrew, put it right through the top, give it a couple twists, and then, um, for the purposes of uh, the show, a little bit of grit when yeah. you pull. And it comes right out, just like that. So you don't have to cut the wax off. You do not need to cut the wax off. Um, no, the wax comes from, 
Um, going back to home winemaking days, my dad had a small collection of wine and every bottle in the cellar that was dipped in wax, it was either like a Magnum or a nine liter or something special that he got at auction. That was always like some don't touch. He had a very, very clever acronym system for a DFT bottle and you can do the math for what yeah. that. So I grew up thinking that the stuff that was dipped in wax was the good shit. So very first bottle, barrel of wine I make in my parents' garage. When I go to bottle it, I borrowed my mom's crock pot and I melted every Christmas candle I could find and we dipped them all in wax. So that's how I ended up with red wax as the color and style. Awesome. Let's get into your story, your unique grit story. Uh, seems like a lot of people out here in the valley made their money elsewhere and then got into wine, but that's not you. So why don't you tell us your origin? Yeah, the the Napa Valley is an amazing place. It, it it and its history is dated in a lot more grit than it is, I think, today. Um, with a lot of people coming here, not knowing what to expect in Napa Valley, and then planting grapes and eventually carving out what is today one of the um, most respected wine growing regions in the world. Um, through the years, Napa has kind of evolved away from some of those kind of entrepreneurial aspects and gone much more to second careers, where you know you make your money elsewhere and then you make your way to Napa to relive your secondary dream, if you will. Um, for me, growing up here, I wanted to be involved in the wine business, never really could figure out how to find a way to make it happen. So from the very beginning, I, I knew I wanted to be here. I just didn't know how that would be, you know, starting a touring company, a transportation company as a kid, you know, 18 years old, driving cars and taking people to boutique wineries. But it wasn't until I realized that as I was behind the wheel driving people to these different family-owned and operated wineries that they'd go to four wineries in a day, you know, most of them gilded sinks, you know, marble columns, you know, the classic Napa Valley Chateau experience. And then they go to one family-owned, operated, you know, dog running around in the kitchen, horse outside experience. And you ask them at the end of the day what the highlight of their day was. It was meeting the owner, having the dog run around in the kitchen, and the authentic nature for which wine was to them. Um, and I think at that point, I realized that there was still an opportunity for me to be a winery owner in Napa. I just had to carve it out my way. So from home winemaking, you know, in my teens, all the way through to, you know, starting A&R in my 20s, um, it, it's, been a, it's been a grind or, you know, whatever you want to call it from the very beginning. But, you know, if you approach it in the sense that there's no... No is not an answer. It's just an obstacle to get around. Um, that's been kind of my my story from the beginning. There aren't there aren't uh, problems. There's challenges. Yeah, I mean, if you want it bad enough, no, you know, failure is not the option. It's just an opportunity for you to pivot, you know, in your process. Got it. All right, you're being a little coy. We got We got to, you know, we got to dig. <laughs> we got to dig a little deeper here. All right. So, I mean, you didn't inherit a winery though. No, no. Um, so we're sitting here today. I, where, where are we, by the way? So, so. we're sitting in um, under a little pergola next to Dad's block. In the yep. background, we've got Lake Hennessy and what is many considered to be the park place of Cabernet. Um, behind us is um, Pritchard Hill. So the who's who of many of the cult, you know, beginning cult wines of Napa Valley. Um, this winery dates back to the 80s. It's an old defunct winery and. Um, had just enough problems that no one else wanted it back then and just enough problems that I could afford it. So in, in late 14, um, my wife and I, after starting a &R many years ago, um, decided that it was time to buy the actual brick and mortar, actually bring together the concept of a vision for a brand and turn it into a legacy um, with the actual winery itself. Um, and that's kind of was the 
turning of the page for A and Aaron from a entrepreneurial business into a family business. Where did the direct-to-consumer model come from, and people having to visit the wine? Like, where, where did that come from? So, I love it. again, to that note of like humble beginnings, you know, I worked under some pretty phenomenal people, both ownership as well as winemakers and different people in the business. And one of the people that gave me my my greatest opportunity was a gentleman by the name of Norm Kicken. Um, he was the owner of Reverie, and for him, it was a second career as well, passion. Um, he had been in New York as a CFO, found love for wine, and an opportunity gave him to be here in Napa, and he didn't leave. And our paths crossed, again, early in my early 20s, and uh, he was of the same kind of disillusion where make great wine, it should sell itself, right? You know, just, all you got to do is make great wine. And he realized very quickly that that was not the case here in Napa. There's great wine made all over Napa. It's all about the, the, the way you run your business and the connection you have with people. And so working at Reverie was the first opportunity for me to be able to manage a change of vision for the way wine was sold versus distribution and the classic three-tier system where it goes into distribution, goes to a distributor, goes to a broker, broker sells it to someone, and then eventually gets back. So we had great success turning Reverie around and turning it into a great success story before I left and used a lot of those same building blocks for A&R. Wine to you seems like it's uh, more of a story and uh, not just something rich people in New York City sit around and drink. <laughs> well, again, going back to Napa's humble beginnings, you know, wine for, for so many, it was the experience for which they had acquiring the wine. This predates the, you know, the World Wide Web and the, the corner wine shop that has, you know, 16 wines on sale every week. This was like, if you really wanted to know wine and you really were interested in the, in the fundamental, like, grass roots, you had to make the pilgrimage to Napa. That was how you figured it out. Um, and when you came to Napa, there was no visitor center. There was no, you know, map with 19 wineries along the Sobrao Trail. You, you literally were driving down dirt driveways and, you know, actually meeting people that you sat in their living room and tried their wine and they were very passionate about it. So my dad, um, when he was discovering wine in the 80s, um, that was his experience. So every bottle told a story. You know, 90% of the gratification of a wine came from telling the story before the cork was pulled. So I grew up with that influence, thinking that the story behind wine was so important. And then by the time I was old enough to know enough about wine, that story was disappearing. You know, people were talking about ratings. People were talking about who made the wine. Some consultant winemaker that lives in a different country, you know, was now the talk of that wine. And there was no history as to where the wine came from and the person that decided this was going to be the chapter of their life to create wine and the story of being there. So A&R from its inception was designed to be an experience that was about visiting the grassroots of what Napa was 50 years ago. And just so our listeners know, I mean, you can't get your wine at a Total Wine or Specs, which we have in Houston, I don't know, other places, or restaurants, right? Correct. Uh, how and can it, people get your wine? It, the, and again, going back to that concept of visiting Napa Valley, you know, you had to make the pilgrimage in the 70s to buy Chateau Montalena. It's not like you walked into your local BevMo and picked it up. And the Anair's kind of division of, or vision of that, that connection to history is really what it is today. So no restaurant, no retail store, no internet. Um, the mailing list as at least one person sitting here already knows, I made the commitment years ago that you couldn't own a bottle of my wine without shaking my hand. Mm-hmm. So, A&R is Gaelic. Yeah, I know. Like I said, there's, there's, there's always an asterisk somewhere. God bless Texas. Um, the, but the reality is, is that you know the the 
the ability for someone to to literally have to go through the beginning stages of meeting an owner, a winemaker, someone that takes the passion. I mean, the grit, I guess, is the mm-hmm. you go back to that aspect of grinding and the boots up. Like you didn't pay someone to be in front. You started the company, you did it yourself. You know, you fixed the problems. Um, A&R is Gaelic for one man or individual. And again, it was really just the sense that it was the business model on the bottle back then. I was it. Owner, winemaker, CFO, CEO, toilet cleaner. You t- you name it, I had to do it. Um, as the vision and the, the legacy, if you will, began to grow, the first employee was my dad. Uh, came to work for me uh, when I went on my honeymoon, and I'd never closed the tasting room. I was open seven days a week. It was just the way it was. And when I left on my honeymoon, I had to either choose to not see visitors um, or actually have someone there. My dad came to came to work for me, and I came back uh, two weeks later, expecting the entire place to be in shambles and problems and. Uh, half of the drivers and different supporters that had sent me business said, well, Grant, if you never want to be in the tasting room again, no problem, your dad's amazing. <laughs> and I don't know whether it was an insult or whether it was a compliment, but it was a realization at that moment that a and didn't necessarily need to be me at the wheel, the shift, the pedal, the gas, everything. It was the ability for me to now take a step into the vineyard, spend a little more time there. Let's talk about your dad. I mean, most grit men have a... a good male role model in their life be it a dad or a coach or could be a business mentor but we're sitting here in dad's block yeah and it's got a cool story why don't you tell us about dad and dad's block dad uh, again like so many you know at that age he's he's now in his mid-70s and you know at that age you know there was a lot of figuring it out you know post-war and everything else and my dad um never went to college he was a grinder himself, just in a different way. You know, he got into the mailroom, worked his way up in the mailroom, all the way up to, you know, helping run some of these companies. And along the way, he always found a way to, not to say yes, but to, to find a solution to a problem. Never focus on the problem, focus on the solution. And that was something that I, I took with me through the years from myself being a college dropout um, into starting my own company, was that there was just never giving up. And I think that is something that came from my dad along the way. Awesome. So tell us, you, you make a special wine every year called Dad's Block. I mean, maybe not every year, but tell us about that. So as I mentioned, I am first generation, so this wasn't a, a winery that was inherited or um, parents that started and I took over. Um, this is something I started, but again, my dad was so pivotal to who I am today as far as my passion for wine and some of the things that I call myself, but also just always being there and to support in any aspect. So the vineyard behind us, sitting behind us, is affectionately known as Dad's Block. It was dedicated in 2017 to my dad, to to my dad, but all dads. I mean, really, at the end of the day, for most, when you look at how hard you work, your dad worked harder. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. true, and especially your grandparents and so on. So, yeah. you know, that aspect of just recognizing the generation that came before that helped pave a lot of the paths, either just through turning out who you are and the drive you have or something other than that but yeah cool well i'm gonna chip why don't you ask a few questions and take the lead i want to dig into the land acquisition side and the grapes and how are you i mean this is some expensive dirt out here so why don't you ask him some questions around that absolutely grant it's a pleasure to meet you today and I don't know if you know this, but you're a legend back in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy sitting there wearing flip-flops. <laughs> but for real, like we've, I've been drinking your wine since 2019, I guess. Kale introduced me to it, and it's phenomenal. I'm, my first time in Napa, and getting to meet you is, 
you know, it's, it's just been an awesome experience. And like y'all, like y'all told me today, it's like not everybody gets this pleasure of, of meeting <laughs> you like this, and it's just awesome. So thank you. Thank you. But like the land, land acquisition side, so you own this parcel, right? Yep. And you have, what, 10 acres? There's uh, 17 total here on the property. 17 total, okay. And then you also lease other properties, and then you have long-term leases tied up with those? Yeah, so from a from a business model perspective, again, being some of the most expensive dirt in the world and certainly the most expensive agricultural dirt in the country, Napa is a, a place where there's a lot of different ways to, to try to make wine or, or create a business out of the wine business. For many, it's buying large lots of land of grapes, but again, at over $500,000 an acre, it's very prohibitive in any form of um, scalable business. So we took the focus of finding the winery and the place that we would kind of call home as our first steps. Mm -hmm. And then from there, worked through finding land leases and um, management, uh, farm, vineyard management firms that we could work with to manage our own grapes and control some of the mechanisms that, that are inherently variables in farming. You know, if you can control something, that's your opportunity to eliminate the potential failure of a vintage, if you will. So though I love my growers and my growers are, are why I'm here today, uh, growers are paid by the ton. That is their focus. Um, and there is a symbiotic relationship until push comes to shove. So for me, being able to control some of the farming um, and making decisions in the vineyard that are in the best interest of winemaking, not tonnage, was really a big step for us to really control our own destiny on the farm side. Awesome. The uh Back in Texas, you know, there's, we don't have, like, like y'all, like, this is grapes and all that stuff, but we do a lot of, like, hay production, farming, cows, cattle, and all that stuff. So the typical lease rate in Texas is per acre, it's anywhere from, like, 10 to $30 per acre per year is what people pay to, to lease land to, for agriculture purposes. What does it look like in the grape business in California? Well, it's, it's less generalized because uh, what you're leasing, depending on how old the vines are, whether or not they need to be replanted, whether they're new, those will all play major roles into the value of that particular lease. Um, also, where it's located. You know, mm -hmm. Napa Valley is broken into, you know, essentially 15 plus AVAs that are all unique in some aspect and, and have different values associated to the grapes that grow there as well. So, you know, some of our mountaintop vineyards on Diamond Mountain, Howl Mountain, Atlas Peak, those are places that are considered premier growing regions and it's by no means downplaying anywhere else. It's just from a lease perspective, you're going to be looking at larger amounts. But just for the shock value, I guess, of looking at that from um, uh, differences between hay and grapes here in Napa Valley, you're probably looking at annually over sixteen to twenty thousand dollars an acre um, per le you know for a lease of land, yeah. um, and it can go up from there. I mean that doesn't include your farming cost at over ten thousand, twelve thousand dollars an acre um, on the grapes. So the the overhead associated to some of these um, grape growing in Napa Valley has been long it's been here a long time. It, some of the external factors that were not factored into these like fires and some of the things we can't control have thrown a significant economic risk into growing your own grapes versus buying them. I know like in, in Texas, like a lot of people do cattle and all that stuff and it's more productive. It's more economically, um, what I to say, uh, your return on investment, you're better off leasing land than buying land to 
you know, um, to run cattle and all this stuff. So is it cheaper to, to lease land to, 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 to have a grape operation, to, to, to have wine, or is it more advantageous to buy, you think? I would say similar to drawing connections to the farming in Texas and, and grape growing in Napa Valley, I would say it's very similar to the concept of cattle where you'd say, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy land when you're when you have cattle, it's better to lease it until you reach a certain point where mm -hmm. it's better to own it. It's the same kind of concept in grape growing and buying here where when you're really small, buying land, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Finding either vineyard contracts that you can buy the grapes or leasing the land makes a lot more sense until you reach a certain threshold where owning the land, because it does go up in value so much every year, exactly. has an overhead. I mean, if, if you came into Napa in 19... I won't even say 1980, and you bought 10 acres, it's worth 100x to what you paid for it. And that's not something that's really wavered at all in the last 50 years. I mean, it's, you've seen growth every single year, upwards of 20%, bottom of 8% every year. We're not making any more of it, I guess. That's know? right. Well, and that's, <laughs> you know, we never, you know, Napa Valley started off as a, um, a shadow of, of the European wine world. They'd been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Napa, so Napa kind of, its identity became a bit of a, a copycat. Let's just look at what's worked for 300 years elsewhere and try to apply it here. And over time, we created our own personality. You know, we opened up the, the winemaking world to less one style and became open to a lot of different styles, especially as the wine drinking public in the U.S. became more open to wine. You saw just a dramatic you know, breadth of, of styles of wine that could work. Um, but just recently, in the last couple of years, you're starting to see a transition here in Napa Valley back to a lot of what the European nation in Bordeaux, Burgundy, and other premier growing regions where they're trying to like not physically build walls, but Ethereal walls in Napa Valley because it is such a limited place. I mean, Napa makes up less than 4% of all the wine made in California. Wow. Yet it's one of the most premier regions in the entire country. So that that limited land is definitely part of what makes it so Absolutely. expensive. Is the, what do you think makes it so premier? Is it the soil? Is it the, the temperatures? Is it is it all that? You know, I think that history, like everything, plays into value. You know, like when you look at, you know, an old car, is it better than a new car or does it have more value because of its history? I think Napa Valley is a twofold piece. One, it has one of the most diverse growing regions for top wines in the entire world. Um, and it's not just one, you know, like you can look at, I'm not downplaying Oregon, so I don't want to get any haters, haters out there about <laughs> me giving a hard time about Oregon. But Oregon's growing region is more, much more centered around in the Willamette around Pinot and white, and it's very specific. Napa Valley between its 36 acres north to south and east to west over 12 to 15 acres at certain or miles at certain places, you have dramatic changes in both soil types as well as temperatures. So I think that diversity also helped Napa become such a pivotal, important place for growing grapes. 
By the way, this is a really good white wine. Thank you. Yeah, what, <laughs> Thank you. Grant, what are we drinking here? So this is our white wine. You know, again, going, getting back to those fundamentals. Tell us about your wine. Yeah, the fundamentals. You know, when I got into this business, you know, I'm not wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel. A lot of people make great wine, and and a lot of the, my winemaking mentors helped show me different styles and different characteristics. But you're always trying to put your thumbprint on something that defines you, and in Napa Valley, Sauvignon Blanc, especially when I got started 15 years ago, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay were it. That was it. You know, you walked into the winery, you had Chardonnay, we had Sauvignon Blanc, and there were versions of Chardonnay or versions of Sauvignon Blanc, but you were going to hit eight out of ten times Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc. Discovering this particular varietal that you guys are drinking right now, which is a clone of Sauvignon Blanc, so it's very Sauvignon Blanc-like, but it's called uh, Sauvignon Masquet, um, and it's a French clone, absolutely phenomenal uh, interpretation of Sauvignon Blanc and the fact that it offers a lot more um, richness in the aromatics, a lot more tropical than your more grassy green Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but it has body, but also not an oaky, flabby characteristic that you'd find in certain uh, certain Chardonnays. So this, for me, is kind of the hybrid. It's something like right in the middle. The ability to produce a white that's refreshing on a hot day, but will stand up in a meal next to some food. Hey, Grant, talk about years ago you mentioned, made a comment as we're sitting here in 115 degrees and wind blowing and dust and we're drinking Modellas and uh, some great white wine. Um, your philosophy years ago, instead of buying a old world wine that you might buy for a very expensive price and then you have to sit in a, let it sit in the cellar for years or decades for it to be good, and you made a comment to me probably over a decade ago that you want to make a wine that when you ship it to Texas or North Dakota or New York, when the person opens it, they can pop it open and enjoy it there. Talk about the philosophy behind that. Well, again, going back to those those skinning cats and lots of different ways of doing this, um, for me, there's a lot of history, and I love, I mean, again, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't in the wine world, if it wasn't for a lot of the French efforts of what they defined. But a lot of tradition in wine came from 400 years of growing grapes in France and their French conditions, and their French growing regions, and their traditions. And as we came to the U.S., as I mentioned earlier, you know, we copied a lot of what French winemaking was all about, which was making, trying to make really, really high acid, low alcohol wines that would lay down for significant amounts of time. And again, that tradition was rooted in French culture. Um, fast forward to today, an American wine market that is budding, growing, and changing, and has no rooted history in aging wine, has no rooted history in this concept of drinking older wine. The aspect of going to the store and buying a bottle and then thinking you have to lay it down for five years is just a, not gonna exist. And so for me as a winemaker, though I do have great admiration for that tradition, here in Napa Valley, we have a very different growing region. I mean, again, talking about heat, now granted France is dealing with unprecedented heat right now as well, but you know, for 100 years, rain in the growing region in Bordeaux was standardized. Here we are luck where we used to be random one out of 10 years if we got rain in September or October. So growing conditions being very different, we're able to create a wine that's much more robust, uh, developed and approachable, I guess is the best way to put it, in its youth. So my winemaking concept and business model was to create great wines that are age, age worthy or cellar worthy, maybe 10, 
12, even 15 years, you know, if you really have that type of patience. 19 years today alone. Yeah, I know. We opened up a, an 03 Clone 181 Merlot that I made Phenomenal. back when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and the wine was absolutely yeah. fabulous. Yeah, so, it was great. Again, great. Yeah. Glad you brought that up. I mean, great example. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean the wine will turn to dust. Yeah. But it also is approachable in its use. So when that box arrives in April, mm -hmm. or as for many of our club members out right now are going to be seeing their fall allocation arrive in the next 30 days, I truly expect a bottle to be open the day it arrives. Well, like, I, I want him to. Well, there'll be three of us, four of us here that'll yeah, be open a bottle I mean, while the day it arrives. It's true. And so, but I never wanted there to be excuse in the box either, where you, like, put a little pamphlet or something in the box. It's like, oh, well, the 2020 vintage is going to have X or Y, but lay it down best between between um, you know 2025 and 2028 like that's not for me wine really shouldn't come with instructions yeah. it's meant to be enjoyed shared and memories created i think that's going to another point you talked about lunch about your dad how he traveled the country a lot of his memories that you remember coming home from business trips he opened a nice bottle of wine and he saw a bottle and said hey here's a story behind it i think part of the grip man club is a lot of people like that that true value relationships if it's with their wives if it's with their family members friends business partners and when you open a good bottle of wine you remember that you come to your winery here we're sitting in a beautiful place here <clears throat> you go to your winery even your one you had 15 years ago you did this you had cuban cigars you have bourbon phenomenal bourbon you have ipas double ipa wood fire pizzas a chef that's phenomenal so it's, it's about the wine but you come here to your winery, it's about the experience and the memories. Us sitting here, the four of us here, will always remember, our wives will remember this trip coming here, the experience of today. So talk about how you, when you're running your business as a CEO, how do you think of those concepts of make great wine, but make a great experience as well? Well, I think through the world of social media and a lot of other things, that, that connection, the human connection has been lost. I mean, again, we all can talk about it. Our fathers that worked in business, they did business with people they liked. They did business with people that they had memories and, and shared together. You know, it wasn't necessarily about a line item in some catalog. So for me, the wine business is very similar. The greatest thing about wine is the people you share it with. And it's it's so unique and different in so many ways than other industries. But if you thought about, uh, what's a good example? Um, you know, like a great cut of beef. And you're like, oh man, I'm gonna wait. Beef from Texas, by the yes, way. Yes, God bless just, Texas. Just, just Again, saying. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna, you guys can start making notes the number of times I say God bless Texas. I'm sure there's gonna be a bunch. Sorry we'll go back to why God bless yeah. Texas at some point. But, but yes, it is true. You know, like you don't you don't think about waiting till no one else is around to cook that great cut of beef. You wait till you have as many people to share it with. And wine is so similar. It's, it's the experience and story you get of sharing it. Even if you only end up with two ounces of that very special bottle, but you got back everything else in the memory and the story and the sharing that you got with all the people. And it's the same thing when you come to Napa. Like, for people coming to Napa, they don't want to be made to feel small. They don't want to be made to feel like they don't fit in. Wine at home should be about the people you share it with. It's the same thing here. When you come, I know people that drink my wine at home drink bourbon. It, you know, the old saying in the wine business, it takes a lot of beer to make good wine. I'm not here to say that I don't drink a lot of beer. Well, we have like a <laughs> yeah, case of beer floating around here. We, the guys down in the cellar were brewing beer last week for harvest. You know, we drink a lot of beer. You don't see us drinking wine at harvest. Yeah. It's hot. We're working our ass off. We want a cold beer. Yeah. So all of that aspect of, of standing back and looking at it from the outside in versus the inside out. Like so many people in the wine business create something and then they push it on anybody that visits to 
to experience the way they want you to see it. And for me, I, as a wine, as an employee, 12 years ago, you know, it's so easy for me to step back and see it from the outside in and go, well, if I visited a winery, what are the things that would be I'd want? You know, would I want someone walking up to me the moment I walk in the door and being like, that'll be $30 a person, sir. You know, and here's your logoed glass that you get for free with your tasting fee. Like, no, I want someone to shake my hand and say, welcome. Come on in. Let me pour you a glass of wine. Let me tell you about this place. And that, those are kind of the fundamentals for what I built the business on just simply because that's that's the way I'd want it if I was walking in. So not charging tasting fees, not having some tasting bar you belly up to. You know, those are all pieces that I think are in the identity of where a and area is. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to give it back to the host up here. So I got a question for you, Grant. Uh, back in the day, you were a pretty good golfer, uh, rumor has it. Do um, you think uh, being involved in sports helped you gain a competitive advantage with your business? Absolutely. And I, we, I have an eight-year-old son at home, and we were just talking about this the other day, the importance of sports and the lessons it learn, you learn along the way both through team mentalities, losing, winning, you know, the influence as a coach, for instance, can give you that you don't even recognize at that moment as a life lesson. You just recognize it as a moment in time and then somewhere along the way you're repeating it 30 years later to your son and you're like, God damn, that must have been really, really like profound at that time because I can still remember it. No, sports is, is really important. Um, golf, for me, I've been six foot since I was in eighth grade. So I played everything from basketball, baseball, football, golf, soccer, you name it. And then as you get older and everybody else keeps growing and you stop, you start to realize maybe your sport is this or that. And it just ended up being golf uh, for me in junior and high school. And that then followed me into um, college for a very short period of time. Um, but that aspect of, of playing a sport or sharing in a sport and the life lessons through it, it's its a huge piece of, of who you become. Um, and that doesn't have to necessarily be sports, to be crystal clear. That can be any extracurricular activity that has challenges, challenges associated to it, yes. Let's stay on your kids, because you told a story at lunch that I, I liked about the farm stand and teach them the value well, of the dollar. I was dollar. Just about to say, go back when I talk about sports. I, I'll <laughs> pivot to that, but what I was getting at when I said other than sports, I mean, 4-H, farming, anything that requires the understanding of, of effort, chances of failure, adversity. You know, like all those pieces, those are all things that kids, you know, the, the, the birth of the helicopter parent, I think, happened in my version of childhood, not my childhood, but my, my age demographic. But I think there's so much about failing that you grow from and the more you shelter that failure i don't really know if you're doing a service long term maybe short term but long term to to that aspect of growth um you know the the concept of falling out of a tree versus falling out of a, a um, play structure you know like uh, you don't need a play structure just go climb a tree you know <laughs> um the same thing you know going back to what you were talking about with the farm stand the kids you know i i grew up understanding the value of a dollar through earning a dollar like that was it wasn't like my parents taught me that lesson necessarily through showing me a spreadsheet it was more like at 11 years old I was realized I could sell golf balls at the local golf course that I found in the creek 
that I went to after school, and then I got a dive mask and realized I could find even more golf balls actually in a pond. And then I was selling them to play it against sports. You know, by the time I was 13, making 500 bucks a week. You know, those are all the things you you build upon in that aspect of a value of a dollar. So our kids, I have a six and eight year old Adelaide and Tristan, um, amazing kids. Um, definitely lucky to have more of their mother in them than me, but um, yeah, yeah, they, they would too, I'm sure. Um, but that aspect I said early with Megs, you know, I want them to know the value of a dollar and the value of work associated to that dollar, not necessarily just this is what a dollar co- you can get, but the farm stand was a big piece, you know, being able to have that and then Megan's influence versus me who would have been like, well, yeah, you have to take the dollars, you have to do this with it. Megan was like, look, philanthropy is something that they will learn, understand giving and the reward of giving. And so... Um, the kids work so, their um, tail So you off. have the farm stand because you have a big garden at your house, right? We have a okay. garden uh, because we love fresh vegetables. I mean, we are very blessed in California to have typically great weather, not normally 115. Um, but we have tomatoes and we have peppers and cucumbers and squash and, you know, all kinds of different aspects, strawberries. And, and it, it requires watering, it requires maintenance, it requires harvesting, basketing, putting them down there, changing them, apples, seasonal produce. Um, so... All of those pieces, chicken eggs, they've got the chickens, they have to go clean chicken eggs and put them down there and feed the chickens. All of those pieces come down to responsibilities and, and then, but also the reward. You know, there's a responsibility only works so far in an eight-year-old until you have something that comes back your way. And um, it was fun this year to see both the kids want to participate in a particular donation toward um, elderly care. And although they've given money from the farm stand to the food bank or to the animal shelters or whatever organization that that month the, the kids are excited about, this year that particular donation resulted in them being on the magazine and their picture in front of their stand and the story behind them. And I think for the first time, again, going back to that learning piece and the response, they got that grit. They yeah. realized that the, the work behind it came because someone it's, recognized it's meaningful. their effort. Yeah, yeah, so they, just so everybody understands, you, some of the, the sales, the yeah. profits they get to keep, but then you require them to give a portion to charity, yeah, right? Yeah, at, at 90 cents on every dollar that comes out goes back to a charity of the kid's choice. Um, my Technically, Adelaide gets to pick her 45%, Tristan, <laughs> but often they'll combine them for, yeah. for you know, whatever it is they're doing. And then the other 10%, they get to use for, like in Tristan's, for instance, is Legos. Legos is a big Great. deal right now. Yeah. You know. well, that's a, where, where is this farm stand? Right at the base of our driveway. We're, we have a really cool um, property that sits in the city, but it's a, for Napa, it's a large parcel of eight acres. So we have a very country experience between the chickens, the dogs, and the gardens within the city. So they have this little farm stand at the bottom of the driveway where uh, the entire neighborhood walks past is their walking area. And so that's where... That's a family question. Yeah, hold on, let me pass the mic. So, Grant, uh, Kendall and I had to, we're blessed to know you back, back so many when? years, back when, <laughs> back in your single days. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, your name's on the bottle. Yes. Your phone number's on the bottle. Yep. You do answer. Yep. Calls and text. Fast forward a few years. You and Megan start dating. Y'all get married. Have kids. Um, two questions, I guess. What's the backstory of Megan's name getting on the bottle and when? So that's putting you on the spot on that one. But more importantly, the question is, how do you, as you, your business was going before you had a family, before you'd married, and then you transitioned to marriage and then family. There's so many people that listen or part of the group men club that are great family men and women and, and husbands and wives. 
and everyone has a challenge of dealing with business and then also juggling up the family, the kids. And it's not easy, as you know, and we all know sitting here. Boy, you just opened Pandora's box. Yes. <laughs> Putting you on the spot. But, so talk about that transition and how you deal with that. But I want to know the Megan question first. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, uh, the big fork in the road for A&R, and people ask all the time when they find out it means one man or individual, they're like, well, how'd that work with your wife? And you're like... Yes, by definition, it was implied that I was single, but it, that was not the concept behind Aaron. Aaron was really more just that it was a one-man show in the sense that I was behind it. If you wanted to talk to the owner, you called this phone number. If you wanted to talk to the winemaker, you called the same phone number. If you wanted to talk to the CFO, you called the same phone number. So it was really just this concept that I was behind the brand 100%, nowhere to hide, no one to give excuses to. So fast forward, Megan and I meet, and you know, Aaron is doing its thing. Megan is a teacher. She's, you know, the most God's gift, you know, a, a middle school or a um, elementary school teacher in inner city Milwaukee. Um, and she's doing amazing things. And finally, after three years of long distance, moves from Milwaukee to Napa. And we both had different careers. You know, she had her career. Um, I had mine. Um, and we kept it that way. I mean, that was, that was her really big thing. It didn't matter what I was making or she was making. Our careers were important to each other. And so... Again, years go by, and the decision when we get married and to have kids is to either decide a is going to be a family business or we're going to keep it small and I'll keep it as a side thing, and she goes back to teaching. And it was her choice. It was really her sacrifice at the end of the day to give up teaching when we decided to buy the brick and mortar of where a is located, and she took over everything she could. Now, this is someone that had never made wine, never been in the wine business, and certainly had never had visions of being an entrepreneur. Uh, that was forced upon her by her Yahoo husband. Um, but she took it in stride and found a, a, an amazing knack for interior design. She designed both wineries inside and out without any, any additional help. Um, and as time went past, the concept of a as Grant's vision didn't really exist anymore. It was our vision. Um, so to your point about the name on the back of the bottle, um, I get this in my head that I'm going to do this in, I think it was 2016 vintage. No, 2018 vintage. I'm going to do this in the 18 vintage as a, an ode and a commitment to that, that, not that some signature on the back of the bottle means really anything, but more just the fact that it is, it is ours. It's ours. And, um, so I have Clara Minan, who's our right hand, designed in air, designed for every, designed everything I touch, put this thing together secretly and have a bottle mocked up with the signature on the back. Uh, no wine in it, just the glass bottle. Um, and so I give it to Megan one day, and I'm like, so what do you think about the new design? And she looks at it, and she's like, looks okay, <laughs> and hands it back to me. They say again, take a closer look. <laughs> There's something you need to see. <laughs> she looks at the bottle, she looks at it, and she, yeah, I see maybe you made the crest a little darker or something. And it was a funny story to eventually be like, you notice your name is on the bottle? <laughs> she never noticed. Never noticed. Um, but it was. It, but it's a testament going back to the fact that that's not her. You know, I did it because it is ours, and it there doesn't. As a proprietor, written up on the back as proprietor, I'm not the proprietor anymore. I may have been, but we are now the business. So, it is a. Um, 
it's a grind being a family business. We both work from home. We both work about 10 feet away from each other, which has a lot of po positives and negatives, as you can imagine. Um, but I wouldn't be here today. The business wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Megan's efforts. I mean, she runs a significantly unappreciated portion of the company, along with having the toughest job of all, being a mom of all two CEO. kids. Yeah. So. Awesome. That's a great question. Thanks, Gil. So let's pull back the curtain a little bit on the wine business. Like, um, I'm going to get a beer while you say it. Go ahead. Get up and get a beer. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, it's being recorded under the influence of alcohol. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and rightfully so here right. in wine We're, country. That's right. Thanks, and good alcohol. Yeah. Good yeah. alcohol. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of skills you need to run a successful brand, I would say, a company. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't. A lot of times you're good at one thing and you learn the others, but tell us about the, the different skill sets you need from there's farming and there's marketing and there's management. Like, tell us about your team and, and, and You know, from a from an operational perspective, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, being so close to an employee, you know, a little over a decade ago, you know, one of the things that I feel like brings a really great depth and success to our company is that I when we hire someone, it's not an employee, they're a co-worker. Okay. And that, that sense of it being a, a co-worker, you know, the wine industry in Napa, for better or for worse, is really not a career industry. Uh, similar to the restaurant business, people work one place, move on to the next, move on to the next. And I told my staff, everyone that came on board, like, look, if you treat this as a career and you commit yourself both, you know, from a skill, from a raising the bar element, I will do the same and treat it like a career to you. So when we say we hire for life, you know, clearly I'm not putting anybody in shackles and saying that they're hired for life, but I'm going to provide a work environment, uh, an experience, um, even an investment in their retirement that is unheard of in the wine business. Um, and that's been phenomenal for us because people just don't leave. We've had staff here from inception you know, and they've become as much a part of the identity of what A&R is today as I am. In fact, almost to a fault, um, not to a fault, almost to, to even more important, because again, as we talked about over lunch, like I don't spend as much time in the tasting room as I used to, because it's much more of a CEO-based role at this point between running the different wineries and brands and obviously juggling kids and a family. So their daily you know, ambassadorship in the tasting room has become the identity of who we are. And they, they're the most amazing representatives of what my wife and I started today by passing on their same passion for their life and their job. So where did that come from? I mean, you, you clearly have a big heart, but you, uh, again, you treat, I'll, you're I'll treating your to team. some pretty awesome bosses. I yeah. mean, again, I've worked for some people that, and again, I'll go back to Norm. Um, Norm Kicken was a great guy. I mean, he is a great guy. He's not gone. Um, he's a great guy. Um, and my time underneath him, I don't know if I ever realized how special it was until obviously I'm running my own company and have my own staff. But those, the way that it was always treated and the way, um, you know, how special it was and, and involved I was in decision making, even if they really were placated decisions. I was still involved because it helped grow me grow as a person, as a winemaker. Um, it was great. It was amazing. So I definitely can speak to that. My dad, um, obviously great, you know, one of the greatest lines I think he ever passed along to me was saying that, you know, if you ever want to be successful in life, you know, surround yourself with people smarter than you. Um, and never never be too prideful or too, you know, whatever to, to, to say, yeah, that person does it 
better than I do. I have other skill sets that I can bring to the table, but I certainly don't mind that person being here. I'm not fearful for it, and that's what's really been a lot of the cornerstone of why we run it the way we do. All right, help us out. So wine used to be intimidating to me. Like I, I wasn't raised. My parents had box wine in the fridge, and I stole my dad's Miller Lite out of the refrigerator. So we were beer people, Germans. So now with client dinners, I'll get the big wine list, and it's like pages, and I've learned coming out here, but I mean, I don't want to buy the cheapest bottle to be a cheap ass, but then I don't want to buy the most expensive because then my clients think I'm making too much money on them. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> help me navigate the wine list. Like, what, what advice you, you got? He is making too much money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a client right there. Oh. So, you know, the funny thing about the wine list is, again, it's very intimidating. Even the concept of the Somme or the sommelier at a, at a, at a steakhouse or restaurant can be, can be very intimidating. It is changing. I can tell you right now just knowing the business well enough, even though I'm not in distribution, I'm not in restaurants, there is a changing of the guard in that sense of not intimidation, more open-minded concepts. But, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I did my first set of entertaining with more than just, you know, another person where you're buying a bottle of wine and you need to make sure, was if someone comes to the table and you have a budget in mind and you're trying to buy something that falls within a budget, it's best to point to the price on the list and say to the psalm, something like this would be great. And it allows for there not to be any, like, awkward conversation at the table of, well, I need to keep the money below this or around this. or right. And you don't have to know anything about the wine. You just want to make sure the budget stays where it is. And you can say to the psalm just by pointing at the number, you not secretly, but just showing the list and being like, this would be something along this would be great. And no one else at the table needs to know you're pointing to a price point. I mean, it was one of the better, I like that. I would say, learning pieces for me at a table. As far as actual wine, it's really tough because, um, especially with the transitions of so many of the founding wineries, I mean, just in the last couple of years, wineries like Schaefer, um, Joseph Phelps, Silver Oak, I mean, some of the Diamond Creek, I mean, some of the founding wineries that helped shape the land here in Napa Valley for young people like me are now owned by overseas ownership. So. It's hard to now have a standard and walk into it and be like, oh, if, if Joseph Phelps' insignia is there, that's a great go-to. Well, I don't know if it will forever. You know, like, I'm not saying it's going to change again. But those are things just to remember is that there is a very big changing landscape on wine. And um, is the – should we focus on year? Is, like, year important? Is region? Like – You know, again, I'll go back to – I call it, like, life hacks. Um, the other red – on the list, which isn't Cabernet, which isn't Pinot, which isn't, you know, the typicals, it just listed as other red, is a place where you can always find a great product at a great price. I okay. mean, whether that be a Petite Syrah, you know, um, whether it be a Cabernet Franc or a Merlot, often some of the best values are under the under other red, you know, aspects. That's good. All right. Thank you. Can I butt in for just one second? Yeah, Chip, go ahead. So I'm pretty impressed with your business acumen. You know, you don't have your MBA or nothing, right? Your school of hard knocks. Yeah. Did you graduate college? No. Okay. Dropped out of the second year at Cal. So, okay, you take a guy like this, who's done what you've done, which is really incredible. You 
got to have a really big why in life. What's your why? Oh, I think. Ooh. It's a tough one, huh? Yeah, it's a, that. There. I mean, we go back to like the domino effect. We do this all the time. Like my wife and I will start drinking. Yeah. Kids are asleep or we're on a date night and we start the whole like, what if this didn't happen? Like this moment in time didn't happen what the trickle down would actually be. You know, like, had I not done this, I would have never met Megan. Had I not canceled that flight, this wouldn't have happened. Or had I, and there are so many, it's so hard to. Okay, but you, take, you, take, you look at the risk that you yeah, take yeah. in life. You're taking a huge risk. So but you never look at it that way. Again, in the moment, that I think that's what defines an entrepreneur, though, Yeah. versus someone else, is that you don't see it as a risk at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look, if you walked into a bank, and said X, the bank's gonna wanna have the leverage and the knowledge to have a backup plan, right? When you go in from an entrepreneurial perspective, you just don't see it that way. You're willing to put in 150%, so if there was a 10% chance that you'd fail, well, you just solve that because you're gonna put 150. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a 10% failure rate. And you just don't know any different. And there were plenty of roadblocks along the way that come up where you're like, "I, I I don't know. But like, you don't have, there's nothing in life that like you weren't picked on or like you got something to prove. You don't have a chip on your shoulder. Like what is it? Oh, wow, look, I feel like I'm sitting with my, my my psychologist right now. All of a sudden, I was like, he's like looking into my soul. Uh, he's from Schulenburg too. You know, you know, you could. I mean, it might. It, it actually comes up with my wife sometimes when she says like, you know, you feel like you have something to prove. Like, I, I do feel like, at a certain point, there's that sense of like, as a college dropout, as a I'll use the word failure because at that time, that's what it feels like. There is no other way to describe it. It feels like a failure. There is this sense of like, well, this is your why because now you can't do this because this happened. And I don't think that was ever for me. It's like it was constantly how do I, how do I prove that, that that college didn't matter to me. Right. I think you, this gives people a lot of hope, though. Well, I mean, it comes up, I mean, again, I'll talk to the families out there that have kids that, you know, uh, probably, I don't want to go too deep, but that have kids that maybe aren't straight A, aren't 4.0, aren't whatever, you know, yeah, I mean, there's a few in the crowd, right? I mean, I was not. Um, But there are passions that can be kindled, and those passions can easily grow and develop and change the landscape of the future of, of an individual. And I, there was a lot of pressure for me to go to university, if you will, like the university. And, and, and the opportunity to be accepted at Cal was in itself a privilege. Um, but it wasn't for me. Um, and so going back to that sense of if you have a kid or if, if a kid does drop out, or just know that kindling the passions and not the failures are always going to end up down a road you don't expect. Um, Again, I started a touring company, bought the website tournapavalley.com. I started touring because I thought that's what I needed to do because I could never be a winery owner. And it was that process that showed me that the people coming to Napa didn't want. And they didn't know it at the time until the end of the day, but they didn't want white tablecloth and being told what to smell or what not to smell or what to drink or not to drink. Or They wanted to sit down and have a real experience. And... It gave me the tenacity to say, I can do this. I can provide that experience and be successful. I love it.
And going back to Texas, by the way, I mentioned I'd do this again. God bless Texas. So I started my 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 passion project, my risk, if you will, um, of AM Air during a time of very big financial unrest in, in the country. Um, and there were a lot of people not coming to Napa. It just it changed the landscape of tourism. There was one very distinctive, very special group of people that were coming to Napa at that time, and that was Texans. And they were coming to Napa in droves, uh, probably a combination of the um, newfound love of wine, um, but also an economic situation in the uh, energy business that was not as hit as hard. Um, but still, how did they end up at my spot? It's not like they ended up at my spot because they woke up one day and said, let's go find this flip-flop wearing kid that's passionate about wine. They got in the car with a driver or guide and said, I want to go somewhere where I can see authentic. I want to go somewhere where I can meet a grassroots business because they cared. And so I don't want to put every Texan in a box, but it was a pivotal time for me to realize that people out there cared about the person behind the product as much as the product. Um, I think and it goes so, along with the Texas spirit of entrepreneurial, that cowboy mentality. Grit. Yeah, it's grit. Yes. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, no, it's it's very true. Um, and to this day, I still have, we were reminiscing over lunch, <laughs> some of the uh, the founding yeah. members of AR. Well, I'll give a plug. Chip oh, Chip, well, Chip's uh, probably like number 12 on the list yeah. of what is 5,400 today. And hopefully, Chip will be a new listener yeah. to the Grit Man Club. Yeah. But uh, I haven't seen Chip in years. So I'm going to say, not this Chip, but a different Chip. Uh, yeah. Chip Holdridge. Chip Holdridge. And, uh, great, great guy. And uh, yeah, introduced us to way back. Back when, so talking about a, a really bad economic time in 08 and 09 when you started your business. Fast forward 10 years, roughly 11 years. Chris and his wife Anne Marie and my wife Kendall and I were sitting in your tasting room. Matt's pouring a tasting for us, and within an hour, he looks at us. He goes, "Shit, I just had six cancellations in the last hour." That was Friday the 13th, March 13th, 2020. Look at you. The week COVID. Shut down the world. Oh, we we're sitting in your water. I don't know if you ever knew that. I don't even that's know if I did know. That's the day you left us early, by the way. Uh, no, 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 no. Hold on a second. Okay. Here. Hold on a second. <laughs> that is something right there. Anyways. Yeah. So that started everything with COVID, and we, and we could talk about that for four hours or 14 hours. But talk about how you had to have the matrix and the ups and downs of COVID. How how'd you handle that? Well, like I said, it's – um. As an entrepreneur, especially a young one in this business, um, there are a lot of learning along the way. It's not like this came with a board of directors and three generations of experience and knowledge to call on. So, you know, when 2020 hit, one of the things that my, again, I'll say it again, I love my wife, uh, very conservative wife who, you know, grew up being told, you save, you know, 30% of every dollar, you know, to retirement. You work your 35 years, you retire. There's no really like if and or but. And so being married to me, running things very differently, I always told her like, look, at the end of the day, the things that we've invested in and the, the work we've created is sellable. So if at any given moment, we really just wanted to be done here, we could be done. I mean, it's not like we're venture capitalists on some unknown like we've got land in napa it's a thing that has a great value so i'd always tell her like it, really the only chink in our armor honey is if the government comes out and says wine causes cancer essentially at that point we might be in a little bit of problem but outside of that we're going to be fine you know and so i always tied that to tourism like as long as napa valley one of the biggest tourist attractions in the sixth largest economy in the world if people stop coming to napa we're gonna have a problem 
And I don't even tell that same story to the bank when I sit down with bankers and they're like, we're really giving this kid this much money right now. And they go like, well, but look at this and look what he's done and look at the success. And they're okay. And I say, look, guys, as long as people keep coming to Napa, I'll be fine. So you can imagine March 2020 when it's announced that people can't come to Napa anymore. That chink in the armor went from being about the size of a pin of, you know, needle pin to being the size of a black hole in my confidence. Um, so that that was a definitely, if you want to talk about why, that could be a why in my life of like, holy shit, like this is something that I need to really like step up. I'm the CEO of the company. I've got 20 something employees that are counting on me to figure this out and we're not firing an employee. Like I will, I said, we'll, we'll mortgage a house before I'm gonna fire an employee because we're in a tough spot. And we said it from the very beginning, we didn't fire anybody, we didn't do anything. But again, my staff, first person to raise their hand and be like, what do we need to do? Not like, well, what did you figure out, Grant? Like, what do we need to do? We'll do anything. Like, we're here to make it work. Um, but they did. Again, going back to that fundamental, like, the relationship you build with staff or build with your, your loyal followers, instead of being a line item on a credit card, I'm Grant Long. It's A&R. &A. You know, like, there is, there's a connection. So, you know, in that pivotal time of, of gray where you really don't know what's going to happen, our loyal supporters stepped up and, and got us through 2020, both in their support of spreading the word, buying our wines, staying loyal, not canceling their allocations. I mean, it was a, it was a really big time for us, for us to feel real, really supported. Yeah, great. I want to go back to just one thing that uh, I keep thinking about. It's just one common thing between all of us, I think, is, you know, you have social media, you got all these things in life, and the world's always trying to tell you you need to do this and you do this. At the end of the day, you look at like Chris and insurance, you're on utilities, you're in wine, I'm in real estate. It always just comes down to the relationship. The people. Every single time. Yep. Well, you said like, what, what about your model is made you successful or, or you stands out? I don't think there's anything that I could do that's really actually overly special. It's just being a good person in business. You know, like my grower relations, you know, again, it sounds silly, right? You get a bill, you pay it, right? Or you have a situation with grapes, you, you deal with it. But I think this valley has been filled with people that don't have a connection to the farm industry. They don't. And so there's a lot of bridges burned, a lot of bad blood. And I just said, like, in this valley, if I'm going to have any success, knowing that everything is on a shoestring, everything is a, a stretch, um, I got to have people that are going to give me the benefit of the doubt, that are going to, you know, give me an opportunity they wouldn't give someone else. And I'm not going to be able to get that opportunity if my reputation isn't there. So taking the high road, always being there, positive and figuring out solutions instead of yelling or figuring out the focus on the problems, it's, it's paid dividends to our opportunities when those whys come up. When that situation comes up where it could go very south and it doesn't because someone says, well, no, I... I could really do this to you right now, but I'm not going to because I know you're a good person and you're going to pay it forward. And that's that's been a big one for us. You you told us today in our tour. Are you the one of the only first generation winemakers? No, not first generation winemaker by any means. There's a lot of amazing first generation winemakers uh, from a from a winery ownership perspective, okay. actual brick and mortar, I think my wife and I are the first, the youngest first generation winery owners in Napa history. That's awesome. 
great. I mean, it's 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 a gr- I mean, again, it's a grind. I mean, yeah. we, my wife said it the other day. We were at it. We again going back to community. We feel like the community has allowed for us to, again, given us opportunities to be here. So we'd like to get back to community as often as we possibly can, as much as we possibly can. So we had, we were at a, a fundraiser event and we're, that we were hosting on Friday, and people that have known us a really long time, kids go to school together and everything, and they 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 know our wines, they know who we are, they're really good people. We'll still get questions where they'll come over and they'll be at the winery for the first time and they'll be like, so this is your other winery. You have two wineries. I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, we've been very fortunate when Norm decided to sell his his land, the opportunity came up for me to buy the brand back from him and then we ran it so well that it benefited from a land acquisition that we now call Reverie 2. And they'll, they'll go, I still don't get it. How do you own two wineries, Grant? You're a college dropout, inherited no, no money. And, it's, and I, I always say, like, look, there is no recipe. It's just hard work. There's just that that drive to not say enough. Not enough is enough because there is, there is that moment. But never to accept that why in the road or that fork in the road as the end of the road. And it's just more like we got to find a solution. We'll figure it out. We're going to persevere. And it takes a village. I, I, it, Megan will bring it up from time to time and say, look, well, Grant, if God forbid anything ever happens to you, like, the company's going to sink. And I said, well, it wouldn't sink. Just maybe not go the way it would go if I was at the helm, but the people that help run our company together with our help are the reason we're here today. If it really was just me and just me, this thing would have failed 100 times over. But we have an amazing group of people that help run this company, you know, as a result. So it's awesome. So you're you're like David and Goliath, man. You're David, right? I mean, <laughs> you're fighting the fight. You're, you're slinging stones against the big billionaires that own wineries. I mean, would it's you, less of a fight. It's more because, again, there's, you know, someone will say, like, oh, do you do you like have wars over like this person's wine and your wine? You're like, no, because. And not to get overly cheesy, but wine's like art. Like there, it's in the eye of the beholder. There's no like best wine. If there was, there'd be no other wine. Wine, right? Yeah. So it's for me. It's more like carving out what makes us who we are, and making sure someone doesn't else say what we are isn't authentic. Yeah. I mean, we are who we are. Like I, people say, well, he doesn't charge a tasting fee because his wine isn't expensive. And I'll go like, no. I don't charge a tasting fee because I refuse to do business with someone before I shake their hand. Like, I want them to get to know me before there's a business transaction. You know, like, that's important to that's me. Yes, I mean, that's really important to me. Or someone will say, oh, his wines are underpriced because he uses mediocre grapes. I'm like, no, we use some of the most sought after vineyard sources in the entire Napa Valley. But I want my wine to be drank on Tuesday. Not once a year on your anniversary. Like, I want someone popping it on Tuesday and sharing it with their friend. I mean, Anair's existence today through the coconut wires, through the sharing of wine. If everybody drank the wine, our wine and didn't share it with friends, we wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's why seven we're out of ten people that walked through my front door at the winery because they were at someone's house and they were like, wow, that's really good. I've never heard of it. How do I get it? How do I find out about it? Mm-hmm. And that's... The sharing of wine is why we're here today. Well, awesome. to that I say that's why, for you, it's not about the money; it's about the relationship. And money is a, is a byproduct of your success. And I think it's because you, I mean, wanting to shake that hand and get to meet the person. Well, I think at the end of the day, we all know the mortgage has got to get paid, right? It's a matter of putting that, putting their trust in the relationship 
will foster the success. Absolutely. Like it's that it's that I guess there's your risk. It's that risk of human letdown where you you can do everything you can to build and foster that relationship whether it be with a client, whether it be with a grower, whether it be with a bank. But at the end of the day, when they're holding your softies, it's their choice. It's a matter of whether or not you have that relationship for them to go that extra mile. So I, I feel like we put it we paid it forward and it's paid it paid it back. You got a question, Danny? Yeah. So so in every industry I guess you have allies and enemies. Who would you consider your best ally in the, the wine industry? Oh I, I jokingly say that um, the only other part I have no investors in my my company. I have a partner in my wife and I have a partner in my bank. My bank is First Republic Bank, I'll give a little Nod to First Republic Bank at a time when another bank was was questioning my abilities. First Republic and Corey Darling were the first two people to step up and invest in me, and it's what's allowed for me to be where I am today. So, local bank. Yeah, yeah, local bank. Um, Great bank. So yes, I mean, would I say ally? I would say that I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that that ability for them to believe in me. in what I believed in and what I was doing um, for my business. Um, as a person, uh, my wife is my greatest ally. Um, Good answer. For sure. For yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, it's true, though. I mean, yeah. like, again, she, we argue. Mm-hmm. We argue like anybody, especially oh, come the fact on. that we're You partners. argue with your wife? Well, yeah, that's what I said. Well, you got two arguments. You got the argument because she's your wife, and then you got the argument that we're business partners in a business together. So <laughs> combine them. Yeah, I know. Well, everybody else around me does, so there you go. Um, but it's true. I mean, like, I, I think that even though we do go to fisticuffs over different aspects of being business owners together, when it comes down, when it boils down to it, she's my biggest supporter in knowing that I will see it through. Sure. I'm never, ever going to stop short. And she believes that. Our other halves are so important. Ah. 100%. They're so important to have. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, Kel, give this to uh, Grant. So, Grant, we got you a little present. So, <laughs> one of our... Sponsors Poncho Outdoors. Oh, I love it. Got you the, the Estacado shirt, Pearl That's, Snaps. That is awesome. And, uh, you know, and my hat to go you, with it. You I got feel you like, a hat. You look like a I Texan. feel like I should be heading to the, uh, the what is it, the, the foothills of Texas to open a winery? Uh, Hill, Country. Hill Country. That's it. I'm telling you, get that shit. You call yourself a Texan well, lover? You get it right. Well, this is great. Wear it with pride. Hopefully, we'll put our Gritman logo on there. The buffalo that stands for tradition and heritage. And I think you're an old oh, soul. Oh, I'm gonna wear this again. <laughs> as I mentioned, we. I hate to use the word dress up like it's a costume because yeah. it's not that. I mean, we are a farm community, but we wear the cowboy hat um, a bit more out of honor than it necessarily it being a daily wear. Yeah. Um, but the next time I put that on, um, I'll Send be us wearing. Send a picture. PonchoOutdoors.com, check them out. Danny, you got something well, yeah, to give them to? Yeah, in addition to that, we've got you a, a Clear Company's hunting shirt. Yeah! Uh, your big hunting. Yes! I love it. This is awesome. And in addition to Boy. that, Kel's got you a golf shirt as well. because. Of oh, my gosh, I'm getting wardrobed out yeah. here. <laughs> wow. Well, it looks like I'm going to have to up the uh, up the ante on the... Um, on the uh, on the gear on my end, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, maybe once or twice. Once or twice. Man, gorgeous. Thank you, gentlemen. You're this welcome. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I got a buddy, Eric, that sent in a couple questions. He told me I better ask you, so I'm just going to rapid right, fire, fire a few. Away. Okay. So he says, 
Do you make wine to your palate or for a certain market? That's a really, also really great question. Um, I don't think I could ever make a wine that I didn't want to drink every day. I mean, I think that so much of what goes into wine is just blood, sweat, and tears anyway, that the thought of creating a wine that you're not proud of or wouldn't drink yourself is just, it's hard to imagine, I guess mm -hmm. is the best way to put it. Yep. Um, that being said, you, there are a lot of ways to fail in this business. Um, the biggest one is to make a wine for yourself and only yourself. Okay. Um, you so see you're it. cognizant of other people's palates. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to be. I mean, yeah. you have to understand that, you know, one of the things that I think, for me, elevated our opportunity to be successful was my background in the cellar, my knowledge of winemaking, and my aptitude for sales and business. As a general rule in the wine business, they're historically compartmentalized. There's the winemaking side, and there's the sales side. And they don't really have this big symbiotic or Venn diagram of overlap. They really are separate. And it's where a lot of the breakdown in the success of the wine business happens. Is someone downstairs wants to make a great product, they call great. Well, that's really good wine, by the way. Oh, hold on. That's a special we got, we vintage. We got a bottle out. Hold on. I finally can hey, open Greg, a bottle that these think, two have not had. Hold on. Do you think Cubza can do that? Oh, yeah. Let's see. Let's see if he's learned anything. Yeah, that's good. Uh, oh, if you tell, if this story's being told, with that, you're telling but, but hold it. On, I'm not Kel, telling it. Why don't you tell him about what Grant called you? And, oh, and no, you know see, what? Look, I was going to say he had to tell sorry, the story. Sorry, Mom, but this was a true story, yeah, so he's got to say my, this word. My mother and kids listen to this story, but this came from Grant. So probably 2000. Let's just say he'd been drinking a lot of my wine for many years. Yeah. And so I've tried to, I don't know how we on video here, but I tried to cut this wax off too many times after a few glasses of wine. So I asked Grant, I'm like, how in the hell do you open this bottle? I believe that your word was, is I'd love to open your wine more often, but it's a real pain in the ass yeah. to deal with cutting this wax off. That's probably an accurate statement. Mm -hmm. And so he's, your exact comments were, don't be a pussy. Get that corkscrew and go right down the middle and open up that damn wine. Let's just say I knew my audience. I'm just saying that does, that's not so, a, uh, that's not a uh, company, company yeah. line, just so, for the record. So, But I'm going to say this, though. About six months ago, I was flipping around on Instagram, and I see a video of how to open one of these bottles. And I'm like, Grant has come a long ways. No, he my staff has encouraged me to come a long way. <laughs> he cusses me out how to open a bottle, but now he's doing YouTube videos on how to open these bottles. But yeah. they're actually... I would say super easy to open. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Open a lot of these bottles. I was just about to say, if you failed on camera, boss, yeah, we'd have a little bit of a problem there. Grant. Yeah. Grant, he on wasn't a court. pussy. <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, if someone calls. Here. So we just opened this bottle of wine. I'm looking at the court. 707-363-0680. Who answers? That's my personal cell. You put your cell phone on the court. Again, uh, you have to remember, when and I started this thing, you know, a decade and a half ago, I made the commitment that you had to shake my hand. Right. And though that has changed, because I can't be in the tasting room every day, there is still the grassroots aspect of the wine that's never going to change, and that is that I don't have any partners. There's no routing number that routes you through India or something like that. Like, you call that phone number, you're calling me. Grant Long, owner and winemaker. Well, you're not going to hide behind anything. No, and I don't have two phones. Up. I always get that one like, oh, yeah, you got two phones. I'm like, 
I don't know how people do two phones. I got one phone that seems like way too much, yeah. let alone having two. So, no, right. one phone. All right, back to Eric's question. Have you ever uh, double fisted on a podcast? Sure. No, this is the first time. First time, good. Um, I call that a lie. How long? <laughs> when I'm editing, I do drink. But this is the first time drinking you, during the recording. Okay. But, you know, how long do you barrel your wines? Barrel aging is not a recipe. It really comes down to the wine itself. You know, yeah. we've had vintages like 2011 that went almost 30 months um, because of their high acid and needing to soften out. Um, and then we've had vintages like 2018 that were so plush, so rich, and so delicate that we ended up bottling them at 20 months instead of the typical 22 to 24. Okay. And how do you know when it's time to pick the grapes? You know, there's a multitude of places in this business where science crosses the artistic or I guess artist side of things um, picking grapes is probably one of the biggest ones where flavor profile what you get used to and I'm not talking like you pick a grape and you're like oh hints of mocha and I pick up you know notes of blackberry it, you, you your palate becomes trained in its association to picking up characteristics when you're chewing on a grape that are knowledgeable to where that will turn into wine, not actual notes of wine. So there's a balance of both tasting grapes as well as where the balance of science comes into play. So typically pH and sugar tend to be the two places of science in the vineyard that we focus on um, combined up with taste, with that actual taste. Okay. And so you have the direct-to-consumer model, only way to get your wine, come here, and what'd you say? You 5,400 members, roughly? 5,400 members today. That's awesome. Thank you. I think we'll get Chip to sign up. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll add one to that. I promise uh, I got a shirt. So. <laughs> and, 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 and you can also buy a barrel, right? This is true. Now, granted, that's not necessarily a uh, on-the-order form okay. aspect, but yes, one of the things that um, that is definitely intertwined to everybody sitting here um, due to the experience itself um, is that, you know, the one of the wines they tried at lunch was a 2003 uh, Merlot that I made um, when I was making wine in my parents' garage, and um, it clearly we had it at lunch. It had still a lot of body and stru- I mean, the wine was still fabulous, but it was a single barrel. And as this company of Van Air has grown to where it is today, and it's it's it has been a growing company. It's not an expanding company, so we've been making the same amount of wine for the last. Well, since 2018 vintage, um, same amount of wine. There is a sense of losing a little bit of that touch of making a single barrel. And um, three years ago, I kind of started the the concept. For me, I think it was more selfishly for me, but to be able to make some single barrel wines um, for some of our loyal supporters. Um, So in instances of either a company wine, a special occasion wine, whether it be a wedding or commemorate a special moment in time, um, whether it be a group of five buddies that are like, I've always wanted to have my own wine. The concept of creating this single barrel wine program where I get to go down into the cave, taste through some different barrels that I think fit that particular supporter's palate, send them barrel samples, and then them experience that concept of trying three or four different wines and going like, that's the one. That's the wine I want to be my own. Um, it's been rewarding for me as much as it's been a really fabulous division of the business. It's awesome. So I listened to a, an interview with Rob Samuels Jr. So his, his dad started Maker's Mark. Yeah. And it was interesting because he then kind of took it and scaled it. But he talked about not losing the craft while scaling. 
and I think that's people probably always struggle in that in business. Yeah. How do you keep the personal touch? So, could you could you speak to that a little bit with what you've done in here? You know, it, it's tough because you know a lot of what I'll say in this particular instance, someone could easily say, "Well, sure, of course he says that," but if I was showing you my P and L and I was showing you my cost of goods and everything else, you'd you'd recognize it's not lip service. You know, we talked about it earlier when you asked, you know, what's your favorite vintage, you know, or what's your best vintage? I always say next year. And it's not a canned line. It may sound a little bit like it in the moment, but the reality is, is every year we push the limit. We push the limit of new grapes, better barrels, better winemaking, new, new um, you know, um, innovation in the way we make wine. Um, every year we learn from something and we make it better. Um, and so I, I think that as we've grown, we've made better wine every single year. You know, like I, I think that's something that is always associated with a lack of quality. It's like, oh, well, they're growing, they're, their quality's going down. And it's like, no, I mean, I think if you lined up my 2008 vintage, first vintage of Air, to the latest release of the 2020 vintage, I think you'd say, I mean, give or take vintage, a little bit of vintage variation, that every year the wine got better. Every year. And that's not to say the wine wasn't good to start. I'm just saying we did what we could do with what we had to work with at that time and never looked backwards of, like, how do we save more money? How do we, how do we, how do we make more profits for the company? We always knew that if we busted our ass, made a great product, and sold out. You know, one of the – I'll say that again. That's, that's actually probably where the bank would chime in and say, like, don't forget to tell them, Grant. Um, <laughs> we sell out of everything we make every year. So we're also not in a storage or, you know, aspect where we're, we're banking on some future sale. We sell out of everything we make every year. You said that earlier, about 7,000 cases? About 7,000 cases annually, and that's across everything from our Mountains Proprietary, Reserve Cab, Grenache, White Wine Blend, um, our special releases, Cabernet Franc, um, Dad's Block. All of the different pieces come together for about 7,000 cases. Um, Sorry, now I've had a beer and two glasses of wine. I'm no, you're good. I'm gonna, but what you're saying is a Gritman principle that we like to hit on, like constant learning and improvement. And it doesn't mean you can't be content in life, but you got to keep grinding. And yeah. when it sounds like you're always trying to get a little better. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I, and my staff, you know, I always go back to like, you can tell someone what to do, or you can join them in the innovative process of learning. And like, I don't tell my staff what to do. Like, we work together, they have the same vision, and we learn together. You know, there are times we disagree. We've had those plenty of times, and typically it's about five to one <laughs> ratio of, like, agreement to disagree. And I, I've had moments where I said, no, this is how we're doing it, and I can explain to you why. You may not like it, but this is the way we're doing it. But I'd say three-quarters of the time, if not more, I go the other way, where they bring something to my attention, I say no, or we're going to do it this way, and then they explain, well, but Grant check this out, this, that, or the other, and you go, okay, yeah, I can get behind that, okay? I know it's adding another 150000 to a budget that I hadn't planned on, but I will find the money because this is something that they want and need and feel is going to elevate what we do. So, yeah, no, I, I think that to a fault, to be honest with you, as a business that has stopped growing, we continually roll money back into making better wine every year. So you're, you said something today on our tour, and, and I liked it because 
we all want to grow our businesses and do more and achieve more, but there's also a time like when sometimes more is less or you find that balance. And it seemed like you found a balance in your business where you know the volume want to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, wine wine is is not a widget. It can't be like re- replicated just by you know more bigger machine kind of thing. Wine is a living, breathing thing, and it's made by people. It's not made in a test tube. It's not made in a factory. So, uh, the people make the wine, and you can have directives, you can have styles, you can even have vineyard sourcing that's consistent. But the people involved make the wine. Um, and so, as we grew to that moment where the payroll covered, the mortgage is covered. Our lifestyle, be it country living, is covered. We kind of hit the brakes and went, this is where we want to be. It's a, it's not a sprint. We're going to be here for 20 years as part of a legacy, building these businesses, building lives and memories with our staff. We're happy with where we're at. And that's kind of where we hit. And we hit that number with less the dollars and cents, more with the people. The staff we have are amazing. They're just amazing. That builds your business, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they have our best interest at every step of the way. So this has been great. So just take a few minutes and invite our listeners to your one, whatever you want to say. Like, give an invitation to come out. Oh, our listeners are hardworking people that believe in grit. They're not freeloaders. They're, they're people that can sit around and have a conversation like this and Well, I will actually take the moment less to plug us because I think really honestly I go back to it. It's a word of mouth business. Mm -hmm. The people that have been here, they know. The people that have had the wine, they know. And they know the people that are going to enjoy this. So from that perspective, I feel like that's going to happen naturally. That doesn't mean anything. I would say that to anybody out there that's in that why, that's in that moment where they've maybe put themselves out there a little bit, more than they expected and they're at that juncture just remember there are more people out there to support you than to kick you when you're down you just just got to believe in them you just do you got to believe in it they're there and they want to people want to believe in other people so just work your ass off pay it forward it'll come back around we need more business owners and more parents and more people that are just working hard and believing in other people I agree. Well, Grant, you're a grit man. Did you know that? <laughs> I guess I am. <laughs> I guess I am. I love it. Might have to come up with a grit man uh, wine here. Let's I think, see here. I mean, you know what? I was, I was, I was I like kind of dancing around it. How I much, like it. How much uh, extra allocation you had available. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with them all yeah, I mean, I love uh, Poncho's contribution. Maybe I'll, I'll add uh, a layer to this and say that there'll be a grit man wine for every, every uh Everybody that visits or everybody that joins the show. I, I think we need to do that. Yeah, done. So, I can do that. Hey, this is awesome. Thank you for the day. Thank you yeah. for the hospitality. Like you've, you've opened us Texans. Or we're from Texas. We kind of think people from California are a little weird. But, well, maybe you're, that's where you're, I should chime in. Though. You're like us. That, this is my platform. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody in California is weird. <laughs> this is where I can say God bless Texas again for the 10th time. There are like-minded people out here. I wanted to wear shorts and flip-flops today, I, but hey, I got overruled by the hey, grit man. I know that on a podcast you can't tell that it's 115 <laughs> right now, but 
I just I'm so impressed by the jean, the Wranglers, the cowboy boots that are being worn right it's now. Hot outside. as shit, hot right as now. shit right now. They're mad at me. Yeah. Let's go. Grant, I'm gonna say one thing, and I'm gonna hand it back to the grit man and these two guys. Um, I'm super proud of you. I've just watched your journey for the last Thank 15 you. years. I've told you this a couple of times. And Kimball and I have been blessed to know you and your family and just watch your journey. I, I think everyone part of this Grit Man Club is inherently just wants to be around good people at the end of the day, yeah. people that do the right thing. Yeah. And you fit that mold perfectly. And so when Chris was kind of kicking around the idea and he asked me what I thought, I'm like, you're like the, like the epitome of what the Grit Man Thank is. You. And just uh, I'm just going to say cheers to you. I know you're wine somewhere around here. But thank you for doing this. Woo. Cheers. Proud of you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, it takes effort. It takes effort to be here in Napa. It takes effort to be a grit man. So thank you. But it's worth it. It definitely is worth it. Yeah. Again, it's about the people. Yeah. So, yes. Great way to end. Cheers. 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 Cheers.